In the Pokemon Game Boy game, players have to pick a starting Pokemon based on the elements of water, grass, and fire. Ah, uh, Dom, this is So What? A podcast about energy? Yeah, but Zach, this is an analogy. Because you see, Squirtle, Charmander and Bulbasaur all have different strengths and different weaknesses. And what we learn along the journey on our way to the Indigo Plateau is that you have to have a well-rounded team if you're going to get all the gym badges. I think the part you're missing is that an analogy needs to make sense. No, 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 it does make sense. I'm getting there. The point is we're talking about the transition to renewables and how we get the grid there. Right. So what's the connection between a grid and Pokemon? Oh, I'm getting to that. Just give me a second. Wouldn't Captain Planet make more sense? You know, like Earth, wind and water combining together to summon Captain Planet? Yeah, but there's no Pikachu in Captain Planet, and Pikachu is all about electricity, so it really does fit in with the grid. I feel like the only connection is Pikachu. You could have just said Pikachu. Should we go from the top and do Captain Planet instead? No, no. Well, we're Zach and Dom, and obviously we know nothing about energy. And maybe a bit too much about Pokemon. But not for long, because this is season two of So What, a podcast from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. You know, before we started this, I'd never thought about energy, but where our power comes from is becoming harder to ignore because we are in the middle of a huge energy transition. We're moving away from Charmander and towards Squirtle. You need to stop now with the Pokemon references. I disagree, I think they're really helping. We can't get away from the fact that we're confronting a climate challenge, and the shift to renewables is something we need to accelerate and invest in. And that impacts everyone. We all want to play our part, but things are constantly changing, and it can be difficult to get your head around what the transition will look like. So this season on So What, we're going to help answer some of those big questions, like how much is it going to cost to power your home on renewable energy? How do we actually run an electricity grid entirely on renewables? How do we get from where we are now to where we need to be and, if we have time, were Brock and Misty an item because there seemed to be a lot of romantic tension between those two? We won't have time. Okay, let's get into it. You know, Zach, I thought the best place to start would be with the traditional forms of energy, like coal. Hang on, isn't this podcast about renewables? Why are we opening with coal? That's like starting a vegetarian restaurant with a steak special. Well, a key part of running a grid entirely on renewables is the phasing out of older forms of energy, like coal. And that means closing down existing power stations, which is a pretty big deal because we're actually electrifying more industries. Let's take the automotive space, for example. If everyone owns an electric car, all of us are going to need more, not less, electricity to move around. Australia currently uses 180 terawatt hours of energy every year. And AEMO, that's the Australian Energy Market Operator, says that if we want to get to net zero, we need to electrify everything, which means we actually need to double our current energy needs. So our energy future needs more power, but what does that mean for our existing power plants? Well, coal power has been a really reliable form of energy for a long time, because these plants are designed to run 24-7, and they help us maintain constant power, even at night. Just one plant can supply a huge amount of our energy needs, and Australia's biggest coal-fired power plant is Araring, which can generate 2,922 megawatts of power at peak output. I don't know what a megawatt is. I'm glad you said that, because I don't know either. I actually dropped science in year 10 to do drama. How'd that go? Uh, well, look, not great when it comes to megawatts, but oh my gosh, I can do a stirring Shakespearean monologue if you'd like. Maybe later, when the microphones are off, and, uh, you know, I've gone home. But for now, uh, why don't you read that sheet of paper in front of you about megawatts? Would you like me to read it out in a Shakespearean voice? Please. Okay, well, the average home solar installation is now 9.54 kilowatts. Uh, I've changed my mind immediately. 
Back to the normal voice? Please. Okay. Well, we need over 300,000 homes, Zach, to get the equivalent energy output as a roaring, which is more households than exist in all of Tasmania. And we'd need those homes to be generating power at night. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this lately, Zach, but there's not a lot of sun at night. Is that on your little sheet of paper? Well, I actually knew that one already. We, we covered it in drama. That's in Shakespeare, is it? Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, that's what that's about. I'm pretty sure so. I only read the introduction. So as it stands now, coal is generating a heap of power. Around 60% of the total power needs in the national electricity market. How do we turn it off without sending everyone into darkness? Well, that's exactly what I wanted to find out. So, of course, I had to go check it out in person. Araring is situated on the New South Wales Central Coast, right near Lake Macquarie, a couple of hours' drive north of Sydney. And it's Australia's largest coal-fired power station. And we're roughly 25-26% of the state's energy output at the moment. So we're in a, you've put us in a ute for the tour. Um, we probably thought it was a walking tour. Why the ute? Uh, why the ute? So uh, all up, it's just over 100 hectares of uh, site with machinery on it. Uh, the site with uh, exclusion zones, probably three times that. Um, to walk it, we'd be here all day uh, and you'd be all exhausted. So this is Rob Chapman. He's one of the operations managers at the power plant. And the scale of the whole site is a bit hard to explain. It's, it's just massive. It's so big that workers often get around on bicycles. Very eco-friendly, you know, for a coal power plant. So uh, he, that's one of the operators, and that'll be he'll be doing his rounds. So to actually get around uh, the site efficiently, the, you, you pretty much you drive or you, you're on a push bike. Only weirdos like me walk occasionally. <laughs> Rob sounds like a personality. I'm surprised they didn't ask him to host the podcast. Oh, no, they did. He, he turned them down. Ooh. Never good to be second choice. I actually think we were somewhere in the 30s. Anyway, so Rob is taking me all around the site, and he's worked there for seven years, right? So he knows it inside out. So I'm going to ask if, if you're explaining how a coal power station or power plant works to a primary school child, mm. which is about my scientific knowledge, how would you explain it? Basically that we uh, heat water to turn it into steam. Steam expands, with that expansion it creates pressure. That pressure we blow onto like, we'll call the turbine a fan for want of a better word. The fan spins, so it's the same as a kid with those little uh, fans that they hold in the wind or blow on and they spin. Exactly the same principle. That's coupled to a generator. The generator spinning in a magnetic field creates electricity. Same as a kid's push bike uh, generator, you know, the, power the lights that rubs on the tyre, exactly the same principle, just really big. And what role does coal play in that process? Coal provides the energy source, so we grind it to a talcum powder, we inject it with hot air, and it's basically it's just a continuously controlled explosion. Now, Araring is obviously a pretty big place, but you can probably picture what a traditional coal power plant might look like. The moment you drive in, the first thing you notice are the massive coal stacks. Huge chimneys, right? Exactly. Uh, probably not the kind that Santa Claus would want to go down, though. I mean, I guess unless he needs to stock up on coal for the naughty kids. I hope you didn't bring up Santa while you are there. Well, I did, but Rob cut me off. He, he said there are actually three main areas of the site that get people really interested. The coal plant, the ash dam, and the, uh, the warm water discharge back to the lake. Um, we'll stop there. That's probably one of the few places we'll get out. And so everyone gasps at the... Uh, uh, where it goes underground. That ash is recycled, uh, the, the called fly ash, it goes into cement. The bottom ash, uh, which we'll drive past on the way through, uh, goes into uh, road base. And the middle ash goes to the ash dam, but we're working on recycling methods for that now. 
So Rob dropped me off for a tour of the main plant, and it was led by a guy named John Carroll. He's the operations manager. So I guess the, main, the operations manager for main plant team is uh, responsible for pretty much um, the megawatts we put over the fence, so daily operations of the, um, the site. The main plant means like the four units, not so much the auxiliaries and the coal plant and the um, ash dam and whatnot are managed by another team. But um, yeah, our role is to keep the units going, um, just talking with trading, um, ensuring they're getting what they need for the market and the grid. Another one of the power plant operators who joined us on the tour was a guy named Liam. And Liam and John were really keen to show me the heart of the power station, which is the boiler or the furnace, where the coal that's been pulverised into a powder is burned. Okay, so what we're looking at here, it's like a little, it's like a little porthole on a boat or something, right into the heart of the furnace. Is yeah, that what I'm looking at right now? The fireball. So how big is that room in there? If you actually have a look, you can see the boiler tubes on the side wall on that side. So in those tubes is the really hot water that's under a massive pressure, which then ends up being steamed through the turbine. So the mills get hot air blown through them, which pick up the coal fines, and it blows it in through the burners, and the fireball's already in there, so it just feeds the fire. And to make the unit do more load, you need more pressure, more temperature, so more energy. So you blow more coal in, the fireball gets more, but the water flow gets faster. And that's basically how it works. Wow, so how hot does this thing get? Well, they say it's like staring directly into hell. We don't really look at like fireball temps, we look at metal temps and steam temps, but between 12 and 1400 up to that. Like we're only a quarter of the way up the boiler, obviously with the flame the higher you go, the hotter it gets. Um, we're doing the minimum load on the unit at the moment of 210 megawatts, so... Yeah, that's pretty calm in there, I'd say, at the moment. I imagine one of the perks of working at this plant is that if you forget your lunch, I'm sure you could cook a pizza pretty quickly at 1,200 degrees. Well, I did get the impression they took safety pretty seriously, though. What's more unsafe than working on an empty stomach, Dom? Well, the furnace, or the, the giant pizza oven if you'd prefer, is controlled by the plant control room. This is basically the brain centre of the whole power station, as John calls it. Where we have our operators running the units. We have basically one operator operating two units, um, another operator operating the other two units, and then the third operator running the station plant, which is all the auxiliaries. Um, so this team, yeah, it's in the PCR. This is where we have our basically 12-hour shifts around the clock, people manning and controlling the units and then they've got what we call um, assistant power plant operators, which are basically the hands and feet on the ground, you know, inspecting the plant, assisting the plant operators from behind the control screen in checking things and making sure the plant's operating effectively. And I've got to say, Zach, walking into this room is like going into the Starship Enterprise or something like that. It's just full of screens and flashing lights. And for quite an old power station, the way it's run these days is really quite modern. Every operator controls a couple of units each, and it's their job to monitor everything to make sure those units are operating as required, depending on what the market needs at any given time. And we're responsible for running the units, so we run uh, two units at a time. This is Craig Sheridan, one of the power plant operators, or PPOs as they're called. So I'm running units three and four at the moment, and um, mostly I guess the things that we do is just really respond to um, the control of the market more than anything else. So at the moment, so screens over at the back, I've got a number that's in the top left hand corner, it says uh, 210, 
and that's the load that we're doing at the moment. So we just basically set up the plant to be able to run to that load and the sort of things that we need to change in and out as we, uh, we go up and down in our, in our load ranges, essentially. So Craig is sitting in this big, comfy office chair in front of a huge curved desk with a whole bunch of screens in front of him. It's basically, I think, every gamer's dream setup. So there are, there must be 50 or 60 different screens in here, all with different, some with, you know, vision um, from the plant, some pretty advanced looking diagrams with things uh, lit up in different colours. Do you know what every single thing on every single one of these screens is saying and doing right now? Mostly, yeah. Yeah, so we, um, so as you can see, we've got the different screens, so we run about half a dozen of those at the moment, but every button on my keyboard will t- take to another screen. So normally there's about 70 screens that are there. So we run the main ones that give us a sort of a snapshot of what's going on over the, the station, like the top right hand one gives us all different trends. So they're the sort of the critical things that you want to watch. And on the other side is my alarm screen. So it tells me if things are changing condition out in the plant. Um, and so you sort of process what's the, what that's telling you and then you go to your different screen to sort of work out the process of what's, what's occurring out there. Be honest, Tom, with all those screens, surely one of them had Facebook open on it. Well, I didn't see Facebook, Zach, but whenever my boss used to walk past my desk, I'd quickly click out of it. Maybe he did that before I came in. We'll never know. So everything up to this point is fairly impressive, but before sending me on my way, Rob showed me one of the most impressive parts of the power station, which is what's called the outlet canal. And just prepare your ears here because it is pretty loud. And that's uh, slightly warmed water on its way back. So we're looking at like a, it looks like a whirlpool or a vortex. It's a funnel like it's an oversized bath plug. It really is. It's it's the same effect. And so from here, this water sort of gushes down into this hole and goes underground for how how long? About just short of eight kilometres. And it, the water comes in over towards Dora Creek, about six kilometres that way. It goes this way towards my unit bay, and it's so we don't recycle our own warm water and then start to superheat, kill seaweed or anything. We take it in over here and we push it in over there. So how far down does it go? Uh, straight down 30 metres, and then it's just a tunnel through the rock all the way out. Just the, the force of the water coming through there and sort of the vacuum as it pulls it out the other side is, um, you know, it's like a small Niagara Falls or something. Yeah, imagine a concrete structure, just, it looks like a funnel. It really is just a bath plug. So in a sense, what we're looking at here is the end of the process, isn't it? End of the cooling process, yeah. So this is kind of... You know, it comes into the place and this is where everything leaves. This is where the process finishes. So this is the end of the cooling process. Well, technically where it hits the lake, but this is the end of the cooling process. The transformers are the end of the electricity generator process and the ash dam's the end of the ash process. So, as far as famous water features go, there's the Trevi Fountain in Rome, the fountains of Versailles in Paris, and are you telling me we can add the outlet canal at the Araring power plant? Absolutely, Zach. All I needed was a picnic rug and a baguette. Ah, okay. Well, I'll add it to my Insta list. So seeing this stuff firsthand, it really makes you appreciate the hard work that goes into keeping our electricity grid online, because we do just take it for granted most of the time. But it's a pretty complex operation, and it also got me thinking about the important task ahead of us, because at some point in the near future, all of this goes away. AEMO says that by 2030, 60% of Australia's coal-fired power will be gone, and 83% of our total energy needs will come from renewables. But herein lies the challenge. Because existing grids um, were designed for large power stations 
typically located far away from, uh, from load centers, and you need a strong transmission infrastructure to support that. This is Gregor Verbich. I'm associate professor at uh, the University of Sydney and also director of the Center for Future Energy Networks at here at the University of Sydney. He's associate professor at the University of Sydney and also director of the Center for Future Energy Networks at the University of Sydney. He just said that. Oh. So broadly speaking, the Center for Future Energy Networks is um, concerned with the transition of power systems of today, mostly run by um, large coal-fired or power stations run on uh, fossil fuels to a more sustainable future where we um, supply most of the power from renewables and also with a big emphasis on distributed energy resources sitting behind the meter in people's homes, small businesses. Gregor says one of the key challenges with moving away from centralised power stations run on coal is our network. Everything was designed around these big generators, but we now have millions of distributed resources pushing power into our grid. Disruption, right? Like what Uber did to taxis. Are you just bringing that up for a chance to mention my Uber rating? I just don't know how anyone drops below four. Well, not every driver appreciates karaoke. It's a lesson I've learned the hard way. Anyway, every solar panel on a rooftop is generating power, and we also need to invest in a lot more large-scale projects, like big solar, wind, and pumped hydro. And often, new grid-scale renewables need to be located in places where there is no existing infrastructure. We also need to find ways to account for the variation in the network, because let's say there's a cloudy day in Melbourne, for example. I don't think that's ever happened before. Um, Maybe once or twice, I'm told. And when it does, we lose a lot of the solar from Victoria. So we're going to need all that sunshine from Queensland to keep the lights on. And the topology of the existing grid is, again, is to support those large power stations. But now when you replace coal-fired and gas-fired power stations with renewables, those renewables power stations are, are built not necessarily in the same location, but where there is good wind and solar resource. And the transmission infrastructure might not might not um, exist in those places. So that's why you have to plan carefully also um, the augmentation of the transmission grid to support those new energy um, sources. And it turns out that because a lot more coal is exiting the market, we actually need to double down on this transmission investment in the next few years. AEMO says we urgently need to spend $12.7 billion as a nation to make sure we have enough transmission capacity to get renewable power to where it's needed. And that's only a fraction of what we'll need to spend by 2050. I might have a billion or two I could uh, pitch in. I'm just waiting for an NFT project to really kick off. The thing is, though, Zach, shutting down a huge facility like Araring is a pretty big undertaking. Yeah, I don't imagine you can hit a stop button and close Araring in a day, right? Well, I actually did ask that, and it turns out you, you can, and the workers often have to do this when they're performing maintenance. But shutting it down for good is a little more complex. So we need to know a little bit more about the site. Development on the Araring power station started in the 70s, and the unit started to come online in 1982. When it first opened, Araring had a life cycle of 50 years, so if you do the maths... Give me a second... Yep, that means Araring was designed to be shut down in 2032. Wait, you needed a calculator to figure that out? Well, yeah, I might have dropped maths as well. More time for drama? I'm very employable. And hang on, you said was. Does that mean that it's not shutting down in 2032? Well, earlier this year, Origin made a pretty big announcement. To close Australia's biggest power station in 2025, 
seven years early. We knew it was coming, but not so soon. The country's largest coal-fired power station is shut down early. So Auraring could now be shutting down as early as 2025, leaving just three years to try to fill the massive void that it's going to leave. So that's the, that's the shortest time you can close it down uh, in relation to giving that notice. This is Steve Rigby. I'm the general manager of Generation and Development, which looks after all of the operating assets that generate electricity and also any future developments in the energy space. Steve runs Origin's entire generation business, which is a pretty big and important job given the transition that's underway. And he says that basically the decision to shut down a roaring was driven by the market, by consumers choosing to make a switch in their own home. The things that drive that is the penetration of renewables has been huge uh, coming into the market, uh, and a roaring just did not become uh, commercially viable uh, when we, we looked at all of the dynamics of the market. Uh, if we look at even last year, there was, there was 3,300 megawatts just of rooftop solar that was installed in, in Australia, and that transition's happening a lot, a lot quicker, uh, and a lot quicker than most people would have realised. Uh, so the, the reason to put the notice in was basically the economics of coal-fired generation in a market that's transitioning very quickly to uh, other types of energy, including renewables. But even though Australians are installing a lot of solar, shutting down a coal station like Araring requires a fair bit of planning. Because if we just flicked the switch today, that would leave a shortfall in the national electricity market, which could result in rolling blackouts. And so before that happens, Origin has to not only fill that void, but figure out what else to do with the site. I think the biggest complexity and, and the one that uh, took a lot of our time during that decision was the, the immediate focus to to maintain ongoing safe and reliable operation. Uh, at the end of the day, we, we still have a 42-month window to, to, to maximise the, the output uh, flexibility of a RARing. So we want to do that, making sure it's safe and reliable. The, the second part is we, we have to start thinking now about the closure planning. Uh, 42 months is not a long time to close a large coal-fired power station. So we need to get uh, we need to get a move on with the either the site rehabilitation or the future uses of the plant. Any chance it could be the world's largest pizza oven? We could do the ad. Coal-fired pizza, just like Grandma used to make. Well, you do know my drama skills. I'm happy to play Grandma. Anyone for a margarita, dears? That's much better than your Shakespeare. That's the best compliment you've ever given me. But anyway, no, I don't think that's currently on the cards. But one of the key things was to, to make sure that we developed a transition plan for the employees and, and the way that we thought about that was making sure that you know we had a, a real focus on training the employees, giving them uh, skills that would be required post the closure, but also uh, redeployment opportunities with longer term career uh, aspirations and, and opportunities within the wider, the wider origin. To the extent that if you use traditional wind and solar technology um, and you replaced all coal-fired power stations with wind and solar, it wouldn't work. This is Gregor Verbich again. And that's the issue Australian energy market operator and other grid operators are facing at the moment to figure out new ways of controlling those sources to be able to completely replace coal and gas-fired generators. You have to understand like the fundamental requirement of power systems, which is to be able to balance supply and demand 
at all times in real time, right? So that so if you remove, I don't know, two gigawatts worth of coal-fired generation from the system, you need to replace that with maybe saying two gigawatts worth of capacity. It's not it's not quite right because when you replace coal with wind and solar, coal is dispatchable, wind and solar are not. So which means that when the wind is not blowing, when the sun is not shining, you still require that capacity. You need other sources for firming. We're going to dive more into that firming capacity later in this series. But at its core, we need to find ways to stabilise the variability that comes from renewables and store any excess power during the day to use at night. Because as you so wisely observed earlier, the sun doesn't shine at night. Exactly, Zach. And those challenges are part of the reason why it's quite a staggered process to shut down a plant as big as a Raring. And of course, there's a lot of thought and consideration that's going into how to best approach this. Not just winding down operations of the plant, but also how the existing site itself can be repurposed to serve the renewable energy market. We need to think about the site in a number of ways and and one is, you know, the rehabilitation because there's certainly aspects that will need to be rehabilitated, but more so the repurposing of that site for the future as well. This is Lauren Barnaby from Origin. She's the group manager for Major Asset Lifecycle, and basically it's her job to make sure that sites like Araring are given new life through the energy transition. These types of processes do take quite a bit of time. You know, we obviously need to be very clear as Origin as to what our objectives are for that site moving forward, and that'll really drive how we decide on what the repurposing activities are for that site. So as I mentioned earlier, Araring is scheduled to be closed in 2025 meaning that's when the power station will stop burning coal. But the transition process, including rehabilitation as they call it, will take several years. I like to, to give an example on this one because it's certainly not just we, you know, turn the plant off and we start, you know, rehab and pulling the plant down the next day. It really is a process. So there's a lot of planning work and a lot of decisions that need to be made over the, the next few years. Um, and that's the work that me and my team will be doing to identify what those repurposing options look like. The other thing too is, is how we actually transition out of operation is a very important aspect to understand how we uh, rehabilitate the site. So we really need to understand and look at options as to how we actually come out of operation and turn those dials down. So if we're talking about shutting down a power plant, what happens to all the old poles and wires? Couldn't we just set up a bunch of solar panels and use the same infrastructure? Well, Araring has a huge amount of transmission capacity that could be used in the future. But Lauren says the terrain isn't quite suitable for the common types of renewables like solar and wind. So the team is working up some other options. You know, there's a number of opportunities in relation to renewable energy generation. You know, solar is probably not the greatest place for solar nor wind because you need obviously really large flat areas of land and the exposure to the sun for long periods of time but you know there is a whole range of technologies even even hydrogen is something that you know we're working with our future fuels team on to see if there are potential opportunities there as well. A common misconception in in the public is that we can simply just switch all of our fossil fuel off and transition over to solar very quickly. This is Bill Truscott Origins Group Manager for Asset Development. This is actually quite a complex thing to do um What we absolutely need to make sure is that the uh, security integrity of the grid is maintained through that process, otherwise we'll be losing power all the time. Uh, And you've probably heard my CEO say a number of times, an orderly transition out of uh, fossil fuels is vital here to make sure that uh, we can maintain 
the integrity of the grid and maintain supply to customers throughout. And that orderly transition is going to take time. You simply can't shut everything off at the same time and transition very quickly across to this new uh, energy source. Right, so solar and wind are out, and apparently no coal-fired pizza either. So how will the site be repurposed? Well, back in January of 2021, Origin announced it was developing a large-scale battery to be built on the Araring site. And the New South Wales government approved that project in May of this year. So the battery project that we are developing right now for Araring is the ultimate size of this battery will be 700 megawatts by four hours in duration. Uh, that means you can uh, charge and discharge the battery in, in around about four hours. That will be rolled out in three stages. Uh, the first stage we are planning to take to a financial investment decision towards the back end of this year with a view to have that in commercial operation sometime in 2024-2025. So I just want to chat about this big battery for a second because 700 megawatts is enormous. Many people know about the big battery that was built in South Australia after a Twitter exchange between Elon Musk and Mike Cannon-Brooks, and that battery was initially just 100 megawatts. There's been a lot more battery projects announced since then, but when it's complete, the Araring battery will be one of the biggest in the world. But this is an, uh, you know, a, a, a indication of where our market is going. We are going to need a lot of storage in this market, um, and we are seeing batteries of this size a number of batteries of, of close to this size are uh, being um, proposed around uh, the Australian market, but also around the world we're seeing bigger and bigger batteries come in. Um, you know, we're, we're taking a lot of coal out of our market over the next um, decade or two. We're taking uh, you know, all of that fossil fuel out and it's going to need to be replaced with, with reliable renewable energy. And to make that renewable energy reliable, we're going to need lots of storage. And that's across all time frames deep time frames uh, using pump hydro and you know, um, short time frames using lithium-ion batteries. Let's pause here for a moment, Dom, because I think we're going to do a whole episode on big old batteries later in the series. Well, that sounds exciting. Well, I'll shut this one down then. The shutdown of Araring is just one of the key steps Australia needs to take over the coming years as we move away from coal, and it's vital to Origin's goal to hit net zero. But that's a large-scale solution. In the next episode, we need to start looking at our homes because each of us has a role to play in this transition and we're the ones paying the bills. It's like a life journey, I guess. Everyone's got a different carbon journey. Some people are still getting on board the bus. You, know, you probably saw the electric car in the carport. Like some people are further down the road than others. So What is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy, and it's brought to you by Origin. Hey, Dom, now that we're doing the credits, maybe we can put some of your drama skills to the test. Oh, I'd love that. What voice do you want first? Ah, uh, Shakespeare. Okay. Production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. Now, Grandma. If you're keen to know more about the shutdown of Araring and Origin's plans for the site, we'll leave a link in the show notes of this episode. Now, Pikachu. Pika, Pika, Pikachu. Pika, Pika, Pikachu. That doesn't work. It doesn't work? Well, I like how you inhabited the character, but I think we might need it in English. That's a good point, actually. Well, look, you can learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what. Or just hit subscribe in the podcast app you're in right now. This series is hosted by me, Dom Faye. Who just received a big A+. (laughs) And Zach Mander. We can't wait to speak with you next time. This is where I bow.